I was channel surfing momentarily the other night. Because quite frankly, there's really nothing on it, and I don't know why I even bother channel surfing, as if suddenly I'm going to see something great where I've never found it before. But what caught my interest was on a particular channel they ran a speech by the Islamic leader Louis Farrakhan. And he was talking about heaven and how that you, the people he was speaking to, have been lied to by the oppressors. And he lumped within that group the Christian oppressors who have told you about heaven, that there's heaven waiting when you die and it's up there in the sky somewhere. And then he went on to say, it's, that's a lie. It's not up there, out there. Your heaven is here, he said. You make your heaven here on the earth. He said, that's why it's called the hereafter, not the thereafter. And he made a big thing out of it. So it's not really a place that you go to after you die. It's here and now. You make your heaven. This is heaven. And I thought to myself, if this is heaven, man, am I disappointed. There's not much good news in that. I think about all of those precious believers in history past who have trusted Christ while they were being persecuted. Why did they suffer persecution? Because they believed in a resurrection from the dead and the hope, the glory of eternal life. There is a real place prepared called heaven. Jesus in John 14 said, You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many mansions, and I am going to prepare a place for you. I've always loved that verse. I love the fact that he said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Because he said that about 2,000 years ago. And if you think that he made that promise 2,000 years ago, that when he ascended to the Father, he was going to begin preparing a place for us, can you imagine what it must look like by now? 2,000 years of preparation when God in six days created all that we see now. Imagine what heaven must look like after 2,000 years of preparation. That's why when a believer dies, I think, lucky. I was going to say lucky stiff, but I probably wouldn't go over very well. <clears throat> Of course, the question remains, how does one get to heaven? Most of the American population believes there's a heaven, but most everyone differs as to how one gets to heaven. That is a very, very crucial answer, how do you get to heaven? You know, if you were asking somebody for directions because you were driving down the road, you wanted to get to a certain city or a certain street or a certain location. If they give you the wrong directions, you're lost. And the longer the journey, the little bit of turn, the little bit of give, misinformation, can make you really lost. Just like if a pilot gets in an airplane and decides to plot his aircraft just one or two degrees off course. It might not mean much in the first ten miles, but thousands of miles down that course, he's way off course. When you asked directions how to get to heaven, well, you better be right, those who give those directions. When you're asking eternal directions, it is incumbent upon the person giving the directions to be accurate. Because if there's one place you want to be accurate, it's when it comes to where do you go when you die. And so Paul gives eternal directions in the book of Romans for all people. Pagan Gentiles, moral people, and the strict religious Jews. He puts them all together. He deals with each class individually, and then he puts them under the great umbrella of we're all condemned so that God might freely give salvation to anyone who just trusts in Christ, the finished work of Christ for salvation. He's been giving eternal direction. He continues to give eternal direction in these chapters. And so in verse 21, we covered that last week. But now is the transition of the second part of Romans. 
The first part is the wrath of God. Now we come to the grace of God. Or as he puts it, the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth to be a propitiation by his blood through faith, to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now I mentioned when we closed last week that there's three important words that we want to bring back to the Christian vocabulary, and some translations have sought to remove the words and simply give you an explanation or what they would like to think is the explanation of the word. But I think there are some great biblical words that we shouldn't just bury and get out of the way, but that we should know what they mean. And the three words are presented here. First of all is the word justification. Verse 24, being justified freely by his grace. Now, it's an important word, important enough for Paul to use 30 times in his epistles, and half of those times are in the book of Romans alone. So it's an important word. Second is the word redemption in verse 24, and the third is the word propitiation. So we're going to kind of have a mini-theology course on those words, get them under our belt, because they're going to mean a lot in the subsequent or following chapters of the book of Romans. First of all, then, the word justified, being justified freely by his grace. This is a word that comes from the law courts. It's a legal word. It's a forensic term that means when you are justified, you are declared righteous. It is a declaration. It's like the gavel goes down and God says, you are acquitted but it's even more than just being acquitted. To be justified is to be declared righteous. And the idea behind it is that it's not that you are righteous, okay? You don't become righteous in justification. You become righteous practically in another term we'll learn later on, sanctification. But let's just cover these words. When God justifies a person, the gavel goes down and he says, I declare you righteous. I know you're a sinner, but I declare you righteous. I am imputing or counting the work that Jesus did on the cross, since he's the only perfect person who ever lived and died for sins. I'm imputing all that he is, all that he did, to your account. I'm not counting your sins against you. I'm declaring you justified. A good explanation of it is to break the word apart. Just if I'd. Just if I'd never sinned. God treats you just as if you'd never sinned. Now remember, we know better. You have sinned. You do sin. You will sin. But as a believer, you should not be practicing a habitual lifestyle of sin, John said in 1 John chapter 5. We don't practice sin, but we do fall into sin. Yet God declares you justified. And here's the other part. He treats you, not only declares you to be righteous, treats you as if you'd never sinned. Justification, then, is an act, not a process. It is the judicial, legal, forensic declaration of God to anyone who says, I trust Christ. At that moment, you are justified. There's no degrees of justification She's not more justified than he is. I'm not more justified than you are. Anyone who has their implicit trust in the finished work of Christ commits their lives to him. They're justified. It's a great term. He uses it at the end of this chapter. He used it at the beginning of chapter 5. Uh, end of chapter 4, beginning of chapter 5. Being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So he builds a lot upon that word. Second is the word redemption. Being justified freely by his grace 
through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. Now, if the first term, justified, comes from a legal metaphor, then redemption is a metaphor from the slave market. It means to purchase by paying a price, to buy back or to purchase by paying a price. It usually referred to a ransom paid in the slave market for a slave. I'm going to give you the money. I buy this slave. I set him free. That's the idea behind the word redemption, to deliver a slave by paying a price. You were a slave to sin. You were a slave to the devil. When you came to Christ, you defected. You left the enemy territory. God paid the price on the cross. You're the slave. You're free. Free to love him. Free to serve him. That was the Greek meaning of the term. The Jews, I think, have an even better background and word picture of the term redeemer than the Greeks. In the Old Testament, there was a goel. G-O-E-L is transliterated from Hebrew into English. The goel. The kinsman redeemer. Somebody who buys back a person lost because they're too poor to pay their bills, their slaves, or they buy back property that's been lost in the same kind of a situation. Great story is the story of Ruth. A woman named Naomi is married to a man named Elimelech. They both live in Bethlehem. Beit Lechem, Bethlehem, the city of bread, the bread basket of Israel. There's always food in Bethlehem, except there was a famine in the land that year. And these God-fearing Jews, rather than staying in Bethlehem, they decided to cross the Jordan River down by the Dead Sea and go east to Moab. So in Moab, Elimelech, Naomi, and their two sons, Melon and Chilion, which mean sickly and pining, lived up to their names later on. They married two wives, Orpah, married Melon, Ruth, married Chilion, both kicked the bucket. Both the men died. Sickly and, and pining died, living up to their names. Elimelech also died, the wife of Naomi. So now there's these three women, one Jewish, two Moabite women. Where's Naomi going to go? Back home. The famine is over, she hears in Bethlehem. She says, I'm going back home. I have nothing here. At least I have the hope of land, of property, of an inheritance in the land of Bethlehem. And so she tells the two Moabite girls, go back home. There's no life for you in Bethlehem. So Orpah leaves, but Ruth clings to her and says, where you will go, I will go. Your God shall be my God. Your people shall be my people. So she goes back to Bethlehem, being a foreigner. And she works in the fields of a Goel, a kinsman redeemer by the name of Boaz. He is related somehow to Naomi by marriage. He didn't have a wife anymore. She didn't have a husband anymore. But he takes a liking to Ruth, who's now part of the family by marriage, when Ruth is out gleaning in the field. And what happens is the property that was lost is brought back to the family, redeemed by paying the price, when Boaz, who is a relative, who is willing and who has the funds, marries Ruth, brings it all back into the family, and he is the redeemer. He's the kinsman redeemer, the Goel. So what a rich heritage uh, to have in mind as we get into these words and into the rest of these great verses. So we've been justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ. Uh, one further thing about redemption. In the book of Revelation is the greatest real estate deal in all of history. In chapter 5, a redeemer is needed. John sees in his vision that on the, in the right hand of the one who sits on the throne, in the right hand of God, there's a scroll written on the inside and on the outside, sealed with seven seals. And a strong angel by the throne, as God is holding the seal, cries out, Who is worthy to take the scroll and unloose the seals? And it says, no one in heaven, no one on earth, no one under the earth was worthy to take the scroll, unloose the seals, and read what was written therein. John said, and so I wept much 
because no one was able to take the scroll and unloose it and read it. And I believe the scroll was, in figurative language, the title deed of the earth lost to Satan from the fall, this full redemption of the earth. That's where the Redeemer comes in. As he's weeping, the angel says, Ah, John, don't weep. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed to take the scroll and unloose the seal. So John looks back, doesn't see a lion, but it says, I saw a lamb as though it had been slain. And he took the scroll. He's about to unloose the seals. And all of heaven rejoices. The 24 elders cast their crowns down. The four living creatures, their golden bowls. It's a, a big commotion. And everybody worships. Worthy is the Lamb to take the scroll and loose the seals. For you were slain and have redeemed us by your blood to God out of every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation. Heaven worships because only Christ is worthy as the Redeemer to buy us back. Third word, verse 25. Whom God set forth to be a propitiation by his blood. Now, when was the last time in a normal conversation in daily living you spoke about propitiating? A propitiation. And because of that, it's a strange word. It's an old word. It still is an English word, but it's sort of kept out of a lot of translations. And in its place... Atoning sacrifice or atonement or other words are placed, but propitiation isn't a bad word. The idea behind it is appeasement or placation, to appease. Now, in, in ancient times, people would appease their deities, appease their God by sacrificing an animal or making sacrifices of plants or some ritual to appease the wrath of their God. They still do this in Hinduism. That's not the real idea behind this word. The real idea is to satisfy the demands of a holy God, satisfy the demands of the law of a holy God that can only be done in Jesus Christ. So God is true, consistent with his own law, a sacrifice that is sinless and perfect. Since the Old Testament sacrifices only temporarily covered sin, Jesus would be the propitiation for our sin. The, the demands of the law would be satisfied so that God, God, based on that, could freely give salvation to anyone who believes. That's the idea behind the word propitiation. It is used, however, 20 times in the Old Testament Greek translation, the Septuagint translation, and it's translated hilasterion in Greek. Literally translated, mercy seat. Propitiation is the same Greek word in the Greek Old Testament for mercy seat. Now remember what the mercy seat was? It was the Ark of the Covenant. If you're not familiar with the Old Testament, at least think of Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know, for a modern audience, that's a good frame of reference, I think. Most have seen the movie. But that was based upon the Old Testament Ark, sort of. And it was a box covered with gold, and on top was a pure gold lid with angels that covered it. This lid was called the hilasteria on the mercy seat. And once a year, blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat. And inside that box were the broken Ten Commandments of God, which symbolized the fact that God's people broke the law. But the blood covered the broken law, and atonement was made. The mercy seat. Now, every Yom Kippur, every Day of Atonement, two goats were brought to the temple. The priest took one goat, slaughtered it, took its blood, poured it into a basin, and sprinkled the blood with hyssop on top of that helasterion, the mercy seat. Another goat they took and laid their hands on it, confessed the sins of the people of Israel, took it to a hill just east of Jerusalem facing the Judean desert, and let the goat out into the wilderness, symbolic of bearing their sins away. I love Psalm 103, as far as east is from west, so far as he removed our sins from us. And the idea is that goats gets way out of sight. We can't see him. We lose him. He's bearing the sins of the people away and the, the sins of the people 
who have broken the law before God are atoned for. Atonement is made. Jesus Christ is our mercy seat. We have sinned. We've broken God's commandments. His blood covers the Ten Commandments that we have broken. And so he becomes our propitiation. By the way, something that would really drive this home, I think, is the mercy seat said God to Moses was the only place God would meet with him. He said, you come in and your priests come in and you do this ritual. And that's the only place that I will meet with you and I will commune with you from on top of the ark between the two cherubim on the mercy seat. The only place that God will meet with mankind is Jesus Christ. So if somebody goes, well, I'm just going to stand before God, like Sophia Lawrence said recently on David Letterman, I'm just going to go to heaven because I deserve to go to heaven. Because if I don't, it's just not nice. Those were her words. But you can't just barge your way into heaven and say, look here, I'm an actor or an actress. The only place God will meet with mankind is the cross. Jesus Christ, the helasterion, the propitiation for our sins. Something else to notice, though it's not a theological term we're going to discuss, it says, by his blood. So often we talk about salvation is free. Oh yes, it's free for us. We don't have to pay anything for it. We couldn't pay anything for it. We don't have anything worth what he gives to us. It's a free gift, but doesn't mean it's cheap. No, it's costly. It costs the blood of the Son of God. He purchased it. He purchased salvation by his blood. That's what the redemption and the propitiation costs. Through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. To demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Important phrase. Don't miss that. God is both just, righteous, holy, and at the same time, he is the justifier. He treats people as if they've never sinned. Now, it's an interesting mix. God has to be perfectly consistent with his character, his nature, and his law. That he gave. He can't break and violate his own law. He can't go against his own character. So, on one hand, God is love, and God, being love, wants to forgive everybody. At the same time, God is light. He's holy. He's just. And he can't violate his own law. Sin must be dealt with. Sin must be judged. Well, how, how do you become just and still justify people? The answer is Christ. Jesus was put on a cross. The wrath of God was leveled against Christ on the cross. So all of the wrath of our sin he took. So that by that act, justly propitiating, he can now declare you righteous. He can be just, dealing with sin, judging sin, at the same time be the justifier of people who come to Christ. So he is both the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. Jesus Christ. Jesus met the demands of the law on the cross, but Jesus also expressed the love of God on the cross, allowing all people, whosoever will, that they can come. Verse 27. Great question. Where is boasting then? It is excluded by what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Now, if salvation is a free gift, you don't earn it. You don't deserve it. And all of the wrath that you do deserve is put on Jesus so that he can be your justifier. Can you ever brag? See, it's, he says it's ex- excluded. Now, can you imagine how boring heaven would be if people were saved by their own good works? If people were saved by what most people say people are saved by, I'm going to be good and get to heaven. What a boring place heaven would be. People would be around bragging about how good they were and how much they deserved to be there. Well, I did this and I did that. Oh, well, that was nothing. Let me just tell you about what I've done. Oh, yawn session. 
Where is boasting then? It's excluded. No, who's going to be in heaven? Well, the thief on the cross is going to be in heaven. He can't brag. He just is going to say, listen, I was on my deathbed and I said, Lord, uh, would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? I knew he was the king. I trusted him. And in just a split second, he said, today you'll be with me in paradise. People like Mary Magdalene are going to be there. People like you and I are going to be there. Freely justified. People who don't deserve it. People who can't earn it. Nothing in my hand I bring, says the hymn. Simply to thy cross I cling. So Paul, see, is stripping away any hope of us trusting in ourselves. Therefore, we conclude, verse 28, we conclude that a man is justified, declared righteous, and treated as such, apart from the deeds of the law. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. God obeyed his own law. The law demanded a sacrifice. God provided himself as the sacrifice. And it was prophesied from the beginning of Scripture to the very end. When Abraham was about to sacrifice Isaac on what became the Temple Mount later on where the temple was built and the sacrifices did take place, Mount Moriah, he was about to plunge the knife in. The angel told him not to do it. But I love what Abraham said to his son Isaac as they're going up to Moriah. And Isaac says, hey, Dad, we got the wood, we got the knife. Where's the sacrifice? And Abraham said, God will provide himself the sacrifice. Not of himself or for himself. He'll provide or by himself, himself, the sacrifice. Then when the angel held his hand back, he said, hey, you know, this was a test. Um, it was only a test. You have not withheld your son, your only son whom you love. And um, the prophecy of the angel was, in the mountain of the Lord it shall be seen. Now there's so much prophecy in that. Take your son, your only son whom you love. Was it his only son? It was his second son. His first son was Ishmael. His second son was Isaac. It wasn't technically his only son, but it was the only son of promise, the only son by faith. And so God called him his only son, whom you love. And that's very important because it's the very first time the word love is used in the Bible. And the very first time the word love is used in the Bible, how is it used? It's used of a father who loves his son and is giving him in sacrifice on Mount Moriah where sacrifices in the temple would take place. It's even more amazing is Calvary, Golgotha, where Jesus was crucified, is part of the very same ridge called Mount Moriah. The Lord will provide himself the sacrifice in the mountain of the Lord it shall be seen. This atoning sacrifice by the Son was predicted all the way throughout Scripture. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. There's not two ways of salvation, one for the Jew, one for the Gentile. All are declared sinners. All can be declared righteous. Anyone who believes in Jesus Christ. Now we get to chapter 4, and Abraham's name is mentioned in verse 1. And notice there's another question. What shall we say that our father Abraham has found according to the flesh? The Jew who would be reading Paul's letter to the Romans would come to this point, and he'd probably have lots of questions going through his mind. He would say something like, okay, you, you just said that we're all under sin, that we're all justified by faith in Christ. But Paul, where does this fit in with our own history? Jewish history. We have a long heritage. We have lots of rituals. We have lots of scripture. Where does this fit in prophetically? Where does this fit in from the law and the prophets? You said it was witnessed to by the law and the prophets. Let's see it. And so he calls now two witnesses to the courtroom. Abraham, exhibit one. David, exhibit two. 
because he wants to go over this whole idea of how were they justified. Were they justified because they kept law? Were they justified because they kept a ritual? Or were they justified by faith apart from any of that stuff? Now it's important that he would bring out Abraham because who is greater to the Jews than Abraham? He's the father of the Jewish nation. He was held in highest esteem. Even Jesus, when he confronted the scribes and the Pharisees, on one point they said, what, are you greater than our father Abraham? Remember what Jesus said? Before Abraham was, I am. In other words, oh yeah, I am. A lot greater than Abraham. I made him. I am the eternal existing one. Are you greater than Abraham? And Abraham is such a hero of faith, a role model, you might say, that he needs to be mentioned. By the way, Abraham is a role model of faith. But you should also know that Abraham, for a role model, had a lot of shortcomings. You understand that. He wasn't perfect. In fact, Abraham would never be able to fit into some of the modern faith churches today. They'd kick him out. Though he's called the father of all those who believe, talk about lapses of faith. He didn't remain in Canaan when there was a famine. He didn't say, I'm just believing God. I'm just going to stay here and trust. He went down to Egypt. He said, there's food down there. I'm going to go down to Egypt. He failed in his faith. Yet he's the father of those who believe. While he was down there, he didn't have enough faith to trust God for his family, so he tells his wife, Sarah, or Sarai at the time, don't tell him you're my wife, tell him you're my sister because you're beautiful and he might kill me being your husband and, you know, I want to protect my life, but whatever happens to you, well, whatever happens to you. So just lie for me, would you? Where was his faith? Then what about his faith when his wife said, hey, you know, uh, honey, I know God promised us a kid and all that, but it could be that God really wants to fulfill it just by you taking my handmaiden, Hagar, and you go alone, and you get her pregnant, and she'll have a baby, and I'll be the surrogate mother, and we'll call that the promise of God. It'll be our little pact. There was no faith in that. It was all of the flesh. So though he's the father of those who believe, I just want to sort of take you off the hook a little bit. Abraham should be an encouragement to you because sometimes you have great faith. And other times, if you're like me, you have little faith. There's certain occasions I say, oh, I know God's going to do something great. Other times I go, oh, man. Okay, I'm going to trust you, Lord, but do I have to? I'm just being gut level honest with you. There's sometimes that it's hard. I relate with the man in the scripture who said, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Part of me believes, part of me is doubting. What shall we say then that Abraham our father is found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, which he is not, but if he was, he has something of which to boast, but not before God. Now think of Abraham bragging. What could he brag about? Well, he might say, well, listen, I gave up everything, right? I left my homeland. I left my family, eventually. I left everything that was near and dear to me, and I took out across the desert with my camels and my donkeys and my tents, and I went to the land of promise. I've given up a lot for God. Well, God spoke to him audibly. God promised him so much more than he had where he was. God promised him that all the world would be blessed through him. All he had to do was walk across after hearing the voice of God and watching the hand of God. You say, well, he gave up so much. But in comparison to what he gained, did he give up much? See, sometimes I hear people's testimony and it sounds like that, like they're boasting. I've given up so much. I was rich, or I was famous, or I was this, and I've given up a whole lot to follow Jesus. When I hear that, I, first of all, I get nauseated. I think, oh, please, you gave up what? Hell. Oh, oh, man, you gave up a lot. Eternal damnation, yeah, big sacrifice. You gave up loneliness, alienation from God, no real direction and purpose in life. Wow, you gave up a lot. Let's give him a hand. 
That's my first reaction. Then I quickly pray, oh Lord, reveal to that person the riches of your grace. What they have received since they've come to you. You know, it's sort of like somebody bragging, yeah, you know, I got this brand new Mercedes and brand new mansion. I won the lottery, but I had to give up my old Chevy. <laughs> oh, wow. We feel real sorry for you. But then he quickly says, but not before God. He couldn't boast. For what does the scripture say? That's always what we should ask when we're approaching what's right and wrong to believe. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Paul quotes Genesis chapter 15. You'll remember the story well. It was immediately after Abraham fought with five kings and defeated them. And probably he was nervous. He's thinking, what if they come back? What if they attack me? What if they form another coalition with more allies and they attack me? I've used up my forces. I've used up my energy. So God appeared to him and said, Abram, don't be afraid. I am your shield. I am your exceeding great reward. Abraham's response was, well, it's fascinating. As soon as God comforts him and says, I'm going to stand strong for you, Abram goes, yeah, but what are you going to give me? Since I don't have any children, I'm childless. And all I have is Eleazar. He's my heir. He's a, from Damascus. He's going to get everything. Interesting response. I'm going to take care of you. Yeah, but what are you going to do now? And God graciously condescends and he says, Come here, Abraham. Come here. Look at the stars. Can you count them? No. As those stars are, so shall your seed be. You're going to be the father of many nations. I'm going to bless you so much. Just as the stars are innumerable, so shall your offspring be. I'm going to bless you. You're going to have a child and a child of promise through him all this. It says, and Abraham believed God and it was counted or imputed to him as righteousness. The time he said, okay, Lord, I trust you. By the way, in Hebrew, it's the word amen. It's as if as soon as God said, I'm going to do this for you, Abraham said, amen. And just that little step of faith, God said, good enough. You believed what I just said. You believed in my promise. At this point, I'm going to now declare you righteous. What, by, by just that? Yes, by just that. That act of faith, I will impute, I will put to your account righteousness. The word in our verse, counted or accounted, is the Greek word legizomai. It's again an accounting term. It means to put to one's account on the credit side of the ledger. Okay? If you look at your ledger, you owe a huge debt to God. What God does is takes the credit that Christ bought at the cross and he imputes it, puts it on your credit side of the ledger, erasing all the debt. All the debt is imputed to him on the cross. He paid for it. By your faith, he imputes the righteousness of his son, and his son pays for your sin. That's what it all means. He believed God. It was accounted unto him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but a debt, as debt. You work for a living. You work every week. You work, and some of you get paid every week. Some of you get paid every two weeks. When it's time for you to receive your paycheck, and you get your paycheck, it's not like they're doing you a favor to give you that paycheck. You worked for it. You earned it. It's not a free gift. It's a debt. They owe you. They have an obligation to pay you. But in contrast to that, but verse 5, to him who does not work, but believes on him who, here's the phrase, justifies not the righteous, not the godly, not the moral, not one religion, the ungodly or the wicked. 
His faith is accounted for righteousness. Can you imagine what a shock that would be to the Jewish hearer? How can God justify ungodly people? How is that possible? Especially in lieu of Exodus 23 where God says, I will not pardon the wicked. In lieu of the instruction to the judges of Israel who are told to acquit the righteous and condemn the wicked. What's the answer again? The cross. He took the wrath of God so that we could take the righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ. He justifies the ungodly. Now, some people will hear what I just said and perhaps take it to an unhealthy extreme, say, well, that's dangerous to preach. By the way, Paul was accused by, um, uh, of preaching a gospel that was so loose. It's called antinomianism, that it was against the law to the extent that you could just do anything you want to and just say, yeah, I, I believe in God, I'm wicked, I'm ungodly, but I just believe God and I'll continue living a wicked lifestyle which is wrong. And people accuse Paul of preaching that gospel. And some would hear this and say, oh, this is dangerous. You're teaching people all they have to do is do nothing, just sit around and just believe, but not really live righteous lives. You have to tell them to work for God and live righteous lives. Here's the answer. When a person truly believes in Jesus Christ, that he has given them his righteousness, that they're acquitted, that they're justified. That will spark a response. And the response is, oh, I'm so unworthy, but so grateful that I want to give, devote all of my energy, all of my life, all of my work for God. It's the person who doesn't truly understand the grace of God that will have a loose life. When you really understand the grace of God, you have a response. Oh, freely will I give my life to him. I'll live for him. He died for me. I'll live for him. What's great about this is you have the proper motivation now for work and for service. What, what bothers me is how many churches from pulpits have stooped to carnal methods to motivate people. Starts in Sunday school. If you bring a friend next week to Sunday school, we're going to give you each a free candy bar. Free candy bar? I think we work for it. Or we're going to give you a ticket to a concert, or we're going to do some great thing, but you bring somebody else. And then they become adults. And if you bring somebody next time and look at our attendance chart on the wall and how many people were attending this time last year and this week we're a little low and look at the offering, we're a little low and let's bring it up. What are we teaching people when we do that? We're teaching people, A, to be carnal and be motivated carnally, and fierce competitiveness in the body of Christ. Both of those are readily eradicated. When you give people the true gospel, they fall in love with Jesus Christ, and the natural response is, I want to give. I want to serve. The motivation is now out of love. You don't have to tell people, knock on 20 doors this week and give them the gospel. Pray one hour this week, read 10 chapters. The proper motivation is, I love God. I want to get close to God. He justifies the ungodly. You know why? Because he can't find any godly to justify. Isn't that right? There's none righteous, we read last week. No, not one. And so in looking in Psalm 14 throughout the earth, there's nobody righteous. They've all gone astray. I'll justify the ungodly. How? By sending my son who was perfect, lived the perfect life no one else could ever lived, died the atoning death, rose again from the dead for our justification, that whoever believes in him, trusts in him personally, will be imputed to their account his righteousness. That's why, you know, Romans, well, I'm excited about it. Just as David, witness number two, also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. And this is a quote now from Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed or 
better translation, oh, how happy. Maybe a modern translation would be, oh, how stoked, fired up, charged up, elated, filled with joy is the man to whom the Lord does not impute sin. You should know that David wrote this at a very crucial period in his life. Psalm 32 was written right after his sin with Bathsheba. He committed adultery. He's used it as an example, and his prayer was right after he committed sexual sin with somebody else's wife when he already had a couple wives, and he was found out. And he was remorseful for his sin, Psalm 51 and Psalm 32, both written after the fact. Psalm 51, he bemoans his sin. Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this wickedness in your sight. Cleanse me, purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. And then he comes to a place in Psalm 32 where he's filled with joy. Blessed, oh how happy is the one or are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. Do you know that joy? If you are aware of your sinful condition, if you know what you're really made out of, and you know that you've been freely forgiven by placing your faith in him, you're a happy person. Live in that joy. Because think about it. No guilt. You know, so many people are burdened by their own guilt. What will I do with my guilt? So they'll listen to the philosophers who will say, there's no such thing as guilt. It's self-imposed. Teach how to deal with it philosophically. They'll go to the psychologist. It's a manifestation of your alter ego and just don't worry about it. You need self-esteem. Guilt is best dealt with honestly. To say, you know what? I am guilty. I admit that. Thank God that he sent his son. And I trust in him that that death was sufficient to take away my sin. And now God looks at me, declares that I am, and treats me just as if I'd never sinned. Come to that realization, you'll deal with your guilt complex. There was an ad, uh, or there was an article in USA Today telling about an advertisement something very ingenious, something I'd never seen before until this article. It's called Disposable Guilt Bags. It was a kit. For $2.50, you get 10 bags with instructions. Instructions, hold the opening of the bag over your mouth and blow all of your guilt into the bag and then go dispose of it. 10 bags for 10 episodes. You think, well, that's hokey. Who's going to buy that? 2,500 people sent in $2.50 to buy those stupid little disposable guilt bags. Somebody made a killing. They touched upon a nerve. People know they're guilty. They want to get rid of it. Well, you won't get rid of it by blowing your guilt away. It has to be washed away by the blood of God's Son. That's why the cross is good news. People get upset. You Christians preach the cross of Christ in this narrow way. Listen, it's very convenient that God has condemned everyone so that he can freely give salvation to anyone who believes. So if you're living in China or Indonesia or America or Canada, you can come the same way. Recognize you're a sinner. Place your trust in Christ. You're justified. That's great news. He can be just and the justifier of those who believe. Does this blessedness, verse 9, see his questions and answers all the way through, does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. Now then, how was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. Now, he just was speaking about David, but in speaking about David, the astute Jewish scholar, or even Christian scholar, would say, well, wait a minute. David was of the circumcision. He was a circumcised Jew. Yes, he speaks about the imputing righteousness and not imputing sin and how happy he was. However, he was under the covenant of circumcision. 
So because of that, Paul takes us back again now to Abraham. Why? Because God gave to Abraham the covenant of circumcision. Now this is very, very important because it shows us that it wasn't circumcision that justified Abraham. It was still his faith. Why? Because in chapter 17 of Genesis, you remember how old Abraham was? 99 years old. When he was 99 years old, God says, walk before me and be blameless because I'm going to establish my covenant with you. You're going to have a son and go through the covenant. And this is the sign. You're going to be circumcised and every male child the eighth day is going to be circumcised. In chapter 17 of Genesis, the covenant of circumcision to the Jewish nation is first given. However, Genesis chapter 15 is when he was justified, right? It was imputed to him for righteousness. He was accounted righteous by God in chapter 15 when he was 86 years of age, or 85 years of age, 14 years earlier. So was he justified just because he got circumcised? No. 14 years before there was ever such a thing as the covenant of circumcision, God freely justified him and he had a relationship with him because he trusted in God apart from circumcision. You say, well, why was circumcision given then? Well, Paul will answer it. Verse 11. And he received, here's the word, the sign. It's a sign. It is not salvation. It's a sign of a covenant. The sign of circumcision, a seal, another important word, of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that is, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of faith with our father Abraham, which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. Circumcision was a seal. It was a sign. It was a sign that I believe the promise of God. It was a sign of faith. I believe God, and God counted it to me for righteousness as a seal of that, a sign of that, circumcision. So when the sign is felt or seen on the eighth day of the male child, it's an example. It's a, it's a sign. God is faithful in his promise. I am saved by faith. Just like in the New Testament, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit till the day of redemption. He's the down payment till the full redemption. So it's a sign. It's a seal of the covenant. So circumcision didn't add nor did the law add, it simply affirms righteousness by faith. All this is very fundamental to the chapters that come afterwards. So he's the father of the circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision and walk in the steps of faith, but also the uncircumcised. 